Welcome to the Big Beatles Sort Out, a show in which I, author and musician Gary Abbott, attempt to finally decide my favourite Beatles recordings by scoring each and every one for lyrical content, musicality and production, assisted by my brother and resident Beatles expert, Paul Abbott. Each episode we explore and score five songs pulled at random from the Beatles' full recording catalogue. Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the Beatles. Welcome to episode 40 and welcome to The Love That's Shining Paul Around Us Abbott. Hello everyone, I like that one, that's good. Imagine me, a big yellow cartoon sun, beaming out love to everyone. Oh, that's always how I imagine you, Paul. Yes, I know. Don't forget you can keep in touch with us at big underscore sort on Twitter and on Instagram or by email to bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com and do please drop us a review on whatever platform you are listening on if you can and like and share our posts. Um, I'm going to skip anything about me today, Paul. What about yourself? Well, nothing for me, but I thought we should mention, perhaps because the news came out today, a very close friend of mine, Mr. Morgan Brown, who I do a podcast with, who I used to be in a band with Mm -hmm. and... uh, who is a very good musician, has written a book. Mm. And so many people listening to this will like other music, and many of you will probably like The Damned. And Mm. so there's a book coming out called The Damned on Track, and it's available for pre-order now. It's coming out on the 29th of July, and it's every Damned album and every track on that. And it's been written by my friend Morgan Brown, his first book. Mm -hmm. I'm super proud of knowing someone who's done something like that. You know, I've known a few people who've put books out, but, you know, it's just it's just great when it happens. It's it's so oh, exciting. Yeah. So if people are into The Damned, that's something to look out for. It's available from all the usual big bookshops and all the little bookshops as well. So <laughs> go, and, go and get it. Great. Yeah. It, I will have to go and listen to The Damned and then read the book. Or read the book and then listen to The Damned. Yeah, well. One of the two. But um, that's really good. Well done, Morgan. And, uh, yeah, hopefully some people will hear this and... Let everybody know all about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well then, we'll get on with On This Beatles Day then, which should be the 12th of July. Yes, the 12th of July. And before I say what it is, I'm going to caveat this with, actually, no one really knows the date that this happened on. Okay. So... Um, kind of pinning it on the 12th of July for this. Yeah, the reason I'm pinning it on the 12th of July is because some websites have just used this date as a convenient Presumably there was nothing else going on, so it's a good one to slot in a bit of info on this date. Mm. It's actually, the, we're basically picking July 1958, and as we say, in the 12th of July. On mm. the building concerned, there's a plaque up that says the 14th of July 1958. Okay. But Mark Lewison has its book has in his book, Tune In, that it probably happened sometime between January and May okay. 1958. And that is the recording session by the Quarrymen of In Spite of All the Danger, and That'll Be the Day. Yeah. Which people will probably know from it turning up on the anthology. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, so I've just used, I've used this on this Beatles Day as an excuse to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Because it's, is this, is this our earliest one we've talked about? Probably is, isn't it? 12th of July, 1958. I think so. I don't think we've gone this far back. Um, no, because you've done early gigs when they were, not the yeah, quarrymen when they think, were... Yeah, we've not done much about the quarrymen at all, mm. have we, really? Uh, but, yeah, so this is quite f- famous that they go into uh, Percy Phillips' recording studio in Kensington in Liverpool. Mm. And by recording studio, we mean stuff set up in his house, Yeah, essentially, which would cut to an acetate. An acetate being 
basically one type of material that's covered in a softer type of material that mm. it cuts you cut into the wax so acetates don't last long no. the more you play them they wear out really quickly mm. which is why they sort of they were used in studios to do like quick things to take away for people to review because mm. they weren't intended to last a long time but the thought of these these kids you know these sort of teenagers finally getting getting together their 17 shillings and sixpence and getting up to Kensington, which is just off the city centre, really. It's not far from the uh, University of Liverpool. Uh, um, I don't know what to say about Kensington. Um, you can get a lot of house for your money up there. Let's put it like that. Okay. Um, oh, I see. But yeah. It's... Yeah, they're just this terrace house. They go in, Percy Phillips, they make this record. And of course, if you're cutting to an acetate, you've got a limited time because of the time it takes to cut it's cutting live yeah you know, it's, it's, it's running whilst you're yeah it's cutting whilst you're playing you can't hang around and go oh I, well i suppose you could try again but you'd have to start a whole new one yeah and that'll cost you in materials yeah. and things so they record in spite of all the danger which is a, a a mccartney harrison composition is how they've credited it okay originally which is obviously pre them having any publishing so they didn't need to list anyone against the name but you know paul mccartney writes it and he sort of gives harrison the credit because he wrote the guitar solo part in it okay and the version you hear on the anthology is actually an edited down version. They cut off uh, one verse through, I think, of it. But, of course, John's singing it. Mm. You know, and John sort of says, you know, as, you know, post this event, sort of said, yeah, I was a bit of a bully back then. So even though Paul wrote the song, I insisted on singing it because I want, you know, because he wanted to be on the record doing that. Yeah. And on the flip side, they're doing That'll Be The Day, a Buddy Holly song. And mm. it just must be amazing. And you know, Well, you and I both know what it's like when you first see yourself record and you've done something sort of, proper there's some sort of record of what you've done uh, literally a record in this case yeah yeah and uh, it's the quarry men so it's john paul and george you've got colin hanton on drums and and duff Lowe on on the piano and having a piano on things is good because obviously it means you can do low-end stuff if you've not got a bassist and i just love the the quote from paul mccartney who's like yeah we got the record the agreement was we'd have it for a week each so john had it for a week and gave it to me i had it for a week and gave it to george then Colin had it for a week and passed it to Duff, who kept it for 23 years. <laughs> and then it was all about McCartney getting it back off him to get it preserved, get it mm. stored, and then ultimately it turning up on things like the uh, the anthology. So mm. it's just fantastic, though. It's just, it always strikes me with the Beatles story. And there'll be another sort of one of these weird Beatles things coming up in this episode as well. Mm. Sort of the way coincidences happen or moments happen or little things are preserved that you'd never expect. Yeah. Like there being a recording happening at the Walton Village Fate when John and Paul met. Oh, you yeah, know, yeah. The fact yeah, there's photographs of that, that actual... Yeah, but, but the fact that you can actually hear the, mm. the, those quarry men playing, mm. you know, before Paul's in the band and st- stuff like that. Not Why did that stuff last? No one would have kept that. You'd have taken your tape home and gone, oh, that was all right and done something else with it. But it's... And so yeah. the fact that they've got this object and they make this, so all part, these little pinprick moments in the sort of, in the Beatles m- map of like, yeah, it, it weren't just nothing and then something. They have all these interesting little points and it might have taken place in this little house in, in or this house in Kensington in Liverpool and that could have been it for them. That could have yeah. been the only thing they ever, ever did other than Absolutely. play some gigs and that, you know, I, I just love it. So I just wanted to, use this excuse for this on this Beatles day to, to mention that. And it's a great song in spite of all the danger as well. I think it's a really good song. 
did they ever return to it in any other form? Or was that no. the, is that the no, only? No, that was it. It just sort of dropped off from the early compositions, really. Mm. Great. I mean, well, McCartney's done it live since, you know, okay. out of nostalgia purposes. And this is the story of this song that we did, you know. Brilliant. Well, we'll get on to something a little bit later in their career. And we'll start with The End. Okay, thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that was the only thing we could do there, really, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Talk about uh, <laughs> talk about further al- along in their career. Mm. Really, the last song on the last album recorded. Absolutely. You know, if not the last one released, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So, as we know, final song on other than Her Majesty on uh, the Abbey Road Records, twenty sixth September, nineteen sixty nine. I have some recording on the 23rd of July, 5th, 7th, 8th of August, 1969, 15th of August for the orchestra overdub, and the 18th of August for some more piano, I think, the sort of stuff that links the sections, piano, I think is that bit. Mm. And it's, well, we know what it is. It's a, it's cosmic philosophy and guitar solos. Yeah. And drum solos. Yeah. Very importantly. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's always a bit strange when we jump into these songs from Abbey Road without the, you know, preceding one, um, because it is one big work, really. So, but it's so it's interesting kind of starting the track with the um, screaming riff from George and the the band hits, um, followed by Paul taking over with his oh yeah all right screamy vocal, yeah, and then Ringo, big. Uh, you know big Ringo big Ringo but big understated Ringo you know it's not it's not like a you know a million fills a second type of thing around the kit it's a no no it's it's like it's like a tribally groovy Ringo-y type of big solo it's the only big solo he's ever done isn't he He doesn't am I right thinking he he didn't like solos he wasn't no he never he he never liked them never wanted to do them Mm. really and it was it was never his bag and that's I think partly why he gets that horrible reputation of not being a good drummer, yeah, which because, is yeah. absolute rubbish. Oh, you know, yeah, it's yeah. out and out nonsense because everything Ringo did on the drums was astonishing. Yeah, but there, there comes a there comes a moment where it's like the only thing we can put here is a drum solo. Imagine it, you know. Yeah, and they had to g him up to do it. You know, he still didn't want to do it on this. It wasn't like, all oh, right, finally, I might as well stick one on here. I've just got, I've got some new uh, heads on me toms, which yeah, is yeah. part of the reason. You know, it sounds the way it sounds. He done it reskinned and stuff like that. You know, he's got three toms at this point rather than just the two that he traditionally had. And they record the drums in a slightly different way on this song as well. Oh, okay. Well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, yeah, it's it's, it's understated, but it's awesome. Um, leading into you know, like say, a huge rock out. Which, you know, before we get into the solos, we have the kind of love you kind of words crescendo building up, almost gospel-y type of mm. feel mm. to them. I mean, it's just them singing it, isn't it? But Well, this is an interesting thing. It's just Paul. Is it? Is he just it's all, multi-tracking? All Paul. Yeah. 
So multi-tracking Pauls with vary speed so he can do really high, which is why it sounds a bit strange and chipmunky ah, at, at ah, certain points because he's, he's vary speeding to get those really, really high high notes cool. that you can't actually sing unless you would be doing a very comedy voice anyway. So he's doing the... Yeah, I see. So all of the vocals on this... on this, I'm, I'm, I think people would love it to be all of them together because of that yeah. sort of end of things type thing and that sort of everyone's unified in rock and roll and harmonies and voices, but it's not. It's just Paul doing the voices. On all of the... Even on the end bit. In, all of it, yeah. yeah. Even the harmonies. Oh, okay. Well, well, there we go. But then they are unified in rock and roll when they each take a turn to do a solo. Yeah. And that's something... I don't know if I knew this before this, that this is what they did. But it is. It's every two bars. They they swap, don't they? And they do that round twice. So yeah, get, so it goes Paul, yeah. George, John, and then they go round again. Which is just such a... Fun, it's so funny. It's so, so out of their normal parameters, this, isn't it? We've got Ringo doing a solo and them just, like, taking turns to rock, rock out a guitar solo in a very, very rocky kind of stage show kind of way you could imagine yeah like, well, i think the funny thing is for them it was it's sort of throwing them back to when they were three guitarists in a in a band stomping around the hamburg stage or whatever mm. you know apparently it's like john and was like at that because of course yoko was around in the studio at the time as well and this is a point where john sort of steps steps away from sitting with Yoko all the time because he wants to just rock out with everyone. Yeah, yeah. And they're all back together, head-to-head, doing these solos, answering, you know, playing off each other. Mm. And what I love about it is you can hear their identities as musicians in the solos, the different styles. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Especially John's, like, which sounds like half of his solos just sound like he's trying to kill the guitar <laughs> and or sounds like a motorbike revving up Yeah, type thing. You know, it's amazing. It's very good. Yeah, and and uh, you know that that lead into the you know the the staccato piano chords, yeah, um, and that real soft melodic phrase, and what we now know is just Paul times three or whatever harmonies, kind of being echoed by the little guitar twiddles, yeah, kind of thing that bridges bridges into the orchestra joining for that lovely final warm but surging build to the climax of the song the medley, the album, the Beatles almost, you know. Um, on any other album, at any other time, the song would still be a stone-cold killer way to end an album. But, you know, with its almost Bohemian Rhapsody-like movement between rocking out, poignancy, builds and falls, harmonies, no excuses, indulgent rocking, it's a real belter of an ending. Uh, you know, it's it's great. But, I mean, it's not just any other album, is it? It's like, like I say, it's, it's officially really the last one they recorded together. Yeah, I mean, obviously they do. They have. There's, that's the way to think of it. Is it's that thing? It is the end. Yeah. It's it can be symbolic, despite all the well. They have to go in and add some overdubs to, you know, I Me Mine or whatever yeah, yeah. later on, or the orchestral overdubs for the Let It Be stuff. I'm not dismissing it, Let It Be, but I mean, like, like in in um in actual linear time, it's kind of really yes, the last yeah. thing they, they they they. And it's very hard to get that out of your head once you know it. Yeah. Because if you only knew the, the Beatles records from the release schedule, then you'd think Abbey Road's second to last album. Yeah. But, it's, but since once you know it was the last one recorded, yeah, it's hard to get out of the head that this isn't the end. No, yeah. Yeah, I think this is the end. I always think of it as the end, and it is confusing, and I have to remind myself, like, hang on a second, is this? Yeah. But it's the way that they did it, isn't it? But as an individual song, it would be to be weird to have on its own and not that kind of climax of that album and that that 
um, side, especially. Yeah. But it's still a joy to listen to. And being over two minutes is actually still longer than most early songs. Um, I mean, it's essentially a rock out with some twiddly bits around it, but I love it still. I'm going to give it 74 for music. Righto. Okay. So production then. Um, first of all, tell us about his drums. Okay. So this is an occasion where rather i mean it's odd to say this because it feels like you'd, you'd think this can't be right okay but it's the first time the drums had been captured into stereo okay right right so it doesn't matter how many microphones you put around something microphones microphones it doesn't matter how many microphones <laughs> you put around something it, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many microphones you put around something if through a desk it, you can f- channel it all down onto two tracks four yeah. tracks yeah. eight tracks one track yeah. Remembering, of course, that we're t- at a time of very limited tracking mm-hmm. here. So even if you had eight microphones around the drums, usually what happens is it ends up on one track. Okay. What they sometimes did was they would feed the kick drum off to another track as well. So you might have the kick slightly more exposed elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it would be sharing a track with a guitar or something like that. I mean, to, just for by comparison, nowadays everything ideally gets uh, recorded onto its own track. Yeah, so separate, and especially now with digital recording where you have essentially unlimited yeah. tracks every single microphone will have its own its own individual so tracks so you can tinker so be, to the yeah. to your heart's content but in this in this situation what they did was they recorded the drums onto two tracks which meant they could actually have proper stereo panning which is why the tom-toms move around so effectively okay so the kit is in stereo rather than pushed into a, 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 essentially a, a mono picture of the drums which might be over in the left might be over in the right might feel bigger because of a reverb or something like that okay but that's why it seems Ringo's drums are significant on this not just because of the solo but because of how they sound on this particular song ah okay well that's something to listen out for I mean they do sound full across the stereo um, yeah and you, because you, they are in this instance and they are yeah and i guess i'd probably put that down to the fact them being up front and center with you know because they're solo so you think oh we're getting a really good listen to his drums but it's also probably because it's spread so nicely over the actual um the range there yeah um yeah so we get we over production wise you get a bit of everything we expect from abbey road we get screamy guitars i mean three at least of yeah. cool different sounds and they really got their guitar sounds great on this album and yeah. a great thick fuzzy bass. It is kind of fuzzy bass, isn't it? Well, it's that yeah, it's that classic Abbey Road bass sound that they've got there. Uh, I don't think it's doubled up with anything here. I think it's just chunky. I yeah, think is the it's word. Definitely I'd use. chunky. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I would say like their standard kind of block backing vocals, but you've thrown you know the fact that that's Paul. Um, but then because they're so, <laughs> the fact that I didn't know it was Paul just shows how much their voices blend together. Um, yeah, you know, a soft and a loud main vocal, a resonant piano, lovely twiddly guitars, and uh, how big an orchestra do is it? This one, Third, I think it's thirty pieces. 30 so pieces. you have a, a fair, fairly big string section. Uh, what else have you got on there? Four horns, three trumpets, one trombone, a nice bass trombone for extra mm. oomph. Which is obviously a classic little bit of George Martin scoring for all of thirty seconds. Oh yeah, it's something it's, like that. It's a tiny amount of orchestra. Um, to, so an expensive session for very little material, but, uh, but yeah, but it's a good. It's it was worth it. Yeah. Um, well, I wonder what they felt though, like in terms of when they were sorting it out and mixing it, when they discovered that it had gone out of sync with the backing track. Oh right. And so they had to do, so they had to fix it by sending 
the recording of the orchestra out to another tape machine and then flying it back into the master tape to get it in sync because it had gone out of sync with the backing okay. track. Oh, right. So that could have been a catastrophe, something you could fix in like mouse clicks now on a on a digital audio workstation. Mm. But the things that you would have to do as a studio engineer, like, whoa, okay. Mm. <laughs> We've just spent a lot of money on musicians. And it's all, yeah, no. Mm. Oh, but they, 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 they did it. Yeah, there was, there was actually quite a lot of post-production on this song to sort of tighten it and cut things out. So, like, there was, like, tambourine going all the way through the drum solo at one point. There was a little extra guitar licks in there. Mm. Um, yeah, so, again, classic studio production work. George Martin going, well, actually, it'd be better if we cut this hard at this point and you bring in a new piano bit here, this sort of thing, to link it. Mm. So it's not, it isn't just mad spontaneous rocking it's a very it's very well planned yeah well it's got to lead smoothly into a piano um piano well a a piano and an orchestra you know they're not just sitting there waiting for them to rock out all in one room are they it's been done like previous things where i take it if you listen to certain layers of it you'll just hear kind of maybe clicks or something where things would be you know that kind of thing until they get put on later on and, and whatnot well i'm gonna say um, 89 for production. Right, yeah. 89 for production. See, I said it. Right, lyrics. Um, oh, yeah, all right. Are you going to be in my dreams tonight? I mean, that's enough already to win me over for some solid rock lyrics, especially how they're phrased with the music. I love those hits. Oh, yeah. I know it's the, the kind of big, cheesy rock words, but they're great. Uh, and then we get the um, Love You backing with the building and building around mm-hmm. those immortal words. Um, and to top it off, the final proper lyric on a Beatles album, if we discount Her Majesty, which is the timeless, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I mean, that's a good line, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things whereby it's... I think I've said it before, it means everything and nothing. Because once you actually over overthink it, it's like what? Hang on, <laughs> yeah, because really, you know, in an ideal world, we'd all give more than we took. Yeah, but I suppose the idea is that if you do give, you get it back. You know, if you're yeah. kind, you will receive kindness and that sort of stuff. Which, in a harsh reality, is not always the case. But I think it's as good a hippie sort of um, philosophy as any to try and apply. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I've, I mean, it's not. I can't say that's a philosophy that I've. I would live by and think. Well, I, this is exactly as much the, the amount of. love. I gave three loves today, and I've only <laughs> had one back. Yeah, it, I, I guess there are. You could easily say, and in the end, you shouldn't really worry about the love you take. You should just keep on, you know, making as much as you can, really. And yeah. that would be. The prime minister stood up in parliament today to explain the current love deficit. <laughs> oh dear. I'd hate to think what I would love. That's why we joined the uh, European Economic uh, Union, because of their, uh, you know, they had excess of love. Yes, and we wanted our quota. Yes, we needed quota. to re- replenish our stocks. Yeah. Well, they're always arguing over who's got the love quota yeah. rights of the channel, you know, we're talking yeah. about. Um <laughs> So, I don't know what that noise was then. That was a very strange <laughs> laugh. I don't think I've ever made that noise before. <laughs> I, I thought it was a distortion on the microphone. Was that your, a little a little snigger laugh? It was a little, just a little angry mutley came out. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, I've gone, gone a bit mad. So, um, 
Yeah, it's just great. It's a great line, though. It's a great lyric. It's, it's not necessarily right, <laughs> but it's. Yeah, it, I mean, McCartney said it was basically like it's doing a. Sh- it, it got the idea of doing a Shakespearean couplet. Yeah, and that's what, that's what it is, more or less. It's very neat. Mm. I mean, what we have, to, we only really have two lines in this song, essentially. You know. Yes. Well, this is your your scoring now has to take into account the effectiveness of minimal material. Well, yeah. If that was the case, then certain previous songs <laughs> would have scored more. Um, you know, um, but it marks out the climax of an album and a career that somehow feels encapsulated within those few words. Yeah. I mean, um, the Beatles must have a lot of love to take given how much they've made. So, um, they're only brief, so I'm going to give them 57. Righto. Which gives it 73.3 overall. And I think we should also give an honourable mention because completely coincidentally, this is the last week, um, Tenacious D did a cover of the end oh yes of course which yes. came out i think as to support a charity um uh, which i don't think the charities really features heavily in the uk so i'm sure if in america it's probably got more to do with that but yeah. um, they didn't sing love you though in the choruses did they no no i i realized luckily watching it on my own before thinking because i nearly got it out to show my wife and four-year-old daughter glad i didn't no and had a little watch of it first always worth doing that but it's um definitely funny and not just funny but i think also a really good homage to a, yeah. a great well, song tenacious d in it you know? yeah you know carl's They're doing a laugh it. yeah it's, it's amazing so i gave it 73.3 overall and that's that the end i will just say as well yeah no oh, not the end just, i mean it, it proves that our system is totally random because we've got 40 episodes in of what's going to be what 43 or something yeah and we got so far along and the end hadn't come out. And I was thinking for a oh, while, yeah, yeah. oh, is it going to be, is it going to come out and be the last one? And people think we've set this up. Well, it would have been perfect. And the chances and people would have wouldn't been have ast- believed us. astronomical. Yeah. No one would have believed it. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I had the same thought too. Um, and we don't know. I mean, just to reiterate in case anyone's forgotten or is listening to this out of order, we don't know what's coming up until we finish recording an episode and then we look at what's what's coming up at the next one so we can do our notes. Yeah. We haven't looked ahead. So whatever it ends on will be whatever it ends on, whether it's a anticlimax yeah. or not. Um, I can't quite do the math to my head of what's, le- what, what's left to come out or the indexing no. rather, but it, it'll be interesting. Right, next then. This definitely isn't the last thing to come out because this is coming out right now. Twist and shout. Twist and shout, Paul. Uh, I don't want to, but I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind watootsieing and yelling. Okay, but I'm not going to do that either. <laughs> okay. um, oh, twist and shout! I mean, this is talk about Beatles icons. You know, iconic songs. It's not even a Beatles song. No, you know, it's <laughs> it's amazing. So this is their cover version of the of the song that was a hit, made a hit by the Isley Brothers in 1962. Okay. So not long before they start, you know, they play it start they start playing it very quickly. They record it for the first album, please please me. Uh, the Isley Brothers version was quite a big hit on the Billboard charts, number 17, number 2 in the R&B chart. Uh, originally a song was recorded by a band called The Top Notes, but they didn't have it as a hit. So it's the Isley Brothers version that's 
inspired the Beatles one. Right. Please Please Me album, 22nd of March, 1963. It gives its name to an EP that comes out in July of 1963. And, of course, it is the final song recorded in the 11th of February, 1963, mega session Mm -hmm. for the first album. And it is just amazing. It's such a classic. and It's so familiar to hear this with Lennon's voice just hanging on. Like you say, after, you know, not, you know, he's, it's all the better for it in some ways because he's just having to scream it. He's not really got the choice, has he? Not by this point. If he doesn't scream it, his vote, it would just die in his, in the back of his throat. It wouldn't, it wouldn't get out, would it? So, um, yeah. And they've got the bass guitar line working up and around the blue scales, taking us through those very simple three chords, you know, yeah, uh, and into the musical interludes with the neat little harmony guitar solos. Yes, which okay. it's all George, I guess. No, it's George. It's, it's George and John. George together, and John do together. Right, yeah, cool. Um, it just still feels like it's so big, even though both guitars have stopped to play that little thing. Yeah, single note lines each, just because yeah. they're they're just really going for it, aren't they? And Ringo's keeping up that, keeping up mimicking that the sort of horn horn solo in the uh, Isley Brothers version. Ah, okay. Um, and into the famous ah sections, ah, ah, ah as they let loose, you know, it, it's, um, it, it, they really get to go for it in those sections, all of them, you know, screaming and shouting and all sorts of malarkey. Um, and like I say, Ringo's making his presence felt here too, with some lovely fills squeezed into the smallest of places. Yeah. Um, and the, um, the emphasis he does along with the shake it on baby bits, you know. You know, he kind of does the tom tom when they do the shake oh, shake it on bass. It's just a, it's just an amazing performance. They've been there sort of twelve hours doing of recording. Mm. You know, it's just out of their minds in the with the experience and the energy and and the opportunity. You know, yeah, as much as anything, and, and that, yeah. that it's that last dig of energy, isn't it? It's that last kind of like, come on, boys. Yeah. And get this one done, and it's like, let's not just let's go out on a, just like in a gig, you know, you, you can imagine, and or if I experienced yourself, but also you can imagine them being like that. Let's let's not, let's not saunter. Let's not let's not kind of a fizzle out. Let's go out with a bang, and yeah. they certainly do. Um, and but before we've really started, we're going up to the the kind of run up to the end and the snare hit and the scream sort of relief from the boys off mic when they finish. You yeah, know. I still the sound of John going, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually, a re- funny enough, it's actually a really controlled song that sounds like it's going off the rails energy-wise. It feels yeah, like well, it's... Yeah, well, that's, it feels like it's pushing at the edges of the vinyl. Yeah. It, pushing at the edges of the of the tape it's captured on. It's 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 contained, but it's like, well, this could this could erupt. Yeah. But it, it, it it's actually pretty strict and precise, you know. Yeah. The reason it sounds like that is because it's controlled release of energy um and there he is they are going if they just properly just went mad and like you know it might it might look good on stage or something but if, if they weren't really hitting those chords right and they were just just hammering the guitars like you know just out of pure delight it wouldn't sound so good so they're actually still recording a really well kind of rendered version of it um yeah absolutely it's, it's the vocal bit which gives it that real feel of kind of like wow we're going off the you know the, the roof's coming off um and yeah they play it very well it's a very very good cover so i'm gonna give it 59 for music 
59. Hey. Philistine. Hey. Less of that. Mm. Um, production then. So two two takes. Yeah. First one is the one that ends up on the record. They did another one after this one. It, yeah, Blimey. yeah. Apparently, some people think it was it wasn't a complete take, but apparently it was. Yeah, they did they did two complete takes. They used the first. You know, it's uh, he's been taking zoobs for his throat, like mm. throat sweets, gargling with milk. Mm. And apparently took his shirt off to record this for some reason. He was probably ill. Was his sore throat from the session or didn't he start yeah, the day yeah. with a sore throat? No, no. It's his, it's, yeah. If he did take his shirt... I mean, some people say that apparently he took his shirt off to do the recording, but it's, it seems odd that in the sort of... Despite the rock and roll nature of the song, that he would... They were still in quite a formal atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone's <laughs> you know, in shirt and ties, like with and, what yeah, looks white, like... White coats and things, but... Yeah, what, what looks like the... Uh, a, a sci-fi set behind them, not like what we imagine now of the kind of the the smoky behind the glass type of control chamber with, you know, so it's not nothing. It wasn't like that, was it? It was more like a, a lab. Yes, yeah, you a know. little bit, a little bit more like that. So I'm not entirely sure that there would be a half nude scouser screaming in in the midst of it all, well, but maybe it was, you know. Well, okay. Well, it's um. I mean, it is please please me. So we have the same big reverb as always, but it's mostly drowned out by the backing vocals and everything else going on. So it sounds great for it. You know, it's not so exposed. It just adds to the overall pushing of the volume of this song. Um, I like the fact that they left. They didn't, you know, even this early on, they left the voices at the end. They didn't try and clean up the fact that they're, you know, they kind of still they're kind of shouting off mic and things. Can you imagine they get to the end of that take and then them saying, well, that was quite good, but you did go at the end, so we're going to have to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, I could almost imagine it, because like you say, that they, well, yes, they, yes. they were very... It was, Boys, are you buzzing? Yeah, it, 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 it wasn't the same world, as I think, as, as rock and roll became. Um, yeah, and how... I mean, I don't know, I guess that production-wise, getting them to keep the end, I don't know if they were being what kind of direction they were getting from Martin at this stage in such an early stage. Was he saying like, come on boys, keep up the energy or was he just kind of, well, like, who knows? I mean, they'd, they'd have worked out what they were doing, what they were recording. And was George Martin's main trick here, putting twist and shout at the end. Did he think, well, okay, I know what they play these songs like in the cavern. I know what yeah. they play them like in the studio. If we put this one here, we're going to get something great. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 it'd be interesting to 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 know, but um, yeah. So it's going to get fifty three for production. Um, so that's forty point three overall because we don't do the lyrics because it's oh, this absolute madness. Well, anyway, that would be that's yeah forty point three overall. So oh, uh, hang on. Well, um, um, the trousers. What's oh my god, it's the prefab four. They're back. Yes, it's the Ruttles with number one. Oh, fantastic. This is, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> The Ruttles from their first album, which was recorded in 20 minutes. The second took even longer. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah, <laughs> so this is the Ruttles doing, uh, yeah, basically their version of Twist and Shout. Mm. But it's a more complicated song than that. So it's, yeah. it's essentially the Ruttles parodying the Beatles doing a cover. A bit like with Baby Let Me Be, Blue Suede Schubert and Goose Step Mama. Yeah. Uh, and it is fantastic as well. You know, just saying number one, number one, something really sort of basic and simple. Yeah. Like that is a really good way to, to get that simple rock and roll feel across. Absolutely. I mean, it's basically the same music in part, but then so is the so is La Bamba, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, yeah. There's plenty of things with that three chord pattern. Yeah. That sort of. It's 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 not it's quite it's it's hard not to avoid sounding like that if you're doing what they're trying they're purposely trying to do. It's a neatly done take on the song, but like it's got a, a slightly different mid eight, which like yeah. I say is more reflective of, of other Beatles songs from that era, in the way that it modulates from the key slightly. Rather than twist and shout, yeah. which is essentially... it's more it's more musically complex, and it is yeah. it is more like it's got that uh, feel of the Ruttles doing the Beatles doing a rock and roll song, the Beatles writing a rock and roll song, as well as the Beatles doing a cover, all yeah. wrapped up in this one thing. But I will say the one thing to they obviously can't get the raw Beatles energy across, so they've had to had to add extra stuff to try and get that sort of frantic feel of twist and shout across so it's like got tambourine the guitar's mm. more complicated you've got the cowbell and the clapping and stuff like that on number one but uh yeah it's just it's great it is good even down to the coughing and having trouble singing it towards the end i think isn't there mm. he's i don't know if he's because he's if he's genuinely having trouble because he's doing well neil's that's not neil's voice is it that's never been yeah. neil innes's type of voice so you know he's got He's done a few good rock and rollers in his in his time, but he was never a, a screamer. And plus, they wouldn't have just spent 12 hours recording. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, next then, Boys. I've been told when a boy kisses a girl, take a trip around the world. Boys, Paul. The department store in Scarborough. <laughs> Used to have a lift and a haberdashery. Yeah. Boys is another song from the Please Please Me sessions from the LP. 22nd of March, 63 still. Again, this is the eighth song recorded in the mega session of the 11th of February, 1963. It's Ringo's first proper vocal highlight piece. It is another cover version. It's the cover of the B-side of Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. Okay. So this has been out for a, since November 1960, I think. It's a song that Ringo had been doing for a while, even before he was with the Beatles. Okay. Well, he's with Rory Storm. Yeah. And the Beatles used to do it themselves as well, with John doing the lead. Some sources say it was one that Pete Best was doing as well, but I'm not entirely sure. I think John might have been the main one for this, and then they gave it to Ringo once Ringo came in. and Yeah. You know, they needed a spot, and it was something he'd been doing with the, the Hurricanes. Mm. And do you know what? Again, it's just a fantastic cover version. It's yeah. it's one of Ringo's absolute vocal highlights as well. It's, yeah, it's just a great moment for the band and a great moment for Ringo to be that good on that record. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, you know, he's he's doing, a, he's doing a good job. I mean, it's obviously not as punchy as Twist and Shout, but it's got no. the same kind of vibe tempo-wise, really. And it's it's kind of underpinned in places by a bass and guitar blues scale riff. It's got a similar, it's a similar kind of you know um, 
cousin to Twist and Shout in their kind of how they're choosing their covers at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. They had particular tastes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's definitely consistent, I should say, with their that's what with with the um, image of themselves they were putting across, just like new bands tend to do, don't they? With their mix of well, here's some covers, so you get a read on who we are. And then when we get to play our own stuff, and then that that you'll understand where we're coming from. Um, it's got a nice, I want to say, surfing style solo in the middle. Well, it's got a bit of that, and if kind it had of, been more twangy, maybe yeah, they could have. I think George's guitar part in parts throughout this, not just the solo, but like the little sort of licks and riffs yeah. he does alongside it, are brilliant. Would, and and in fact, it goes back to what you were saying about twist and shout of the idea that. Actually, they were in the studio, so they had to get this stuff right. Yeah. But it still feels really rocky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't just kind of like, ah, oh, wing it. Because it, you know, that, you know, that, that one That was never, never George. No, really. he wouldn't have done it. I guess the one thing with this, is Ringo singing and playing at the same time? He is. Which it so, seems so mad now, doesn't it? It's like, oh. That's just ludicrous, yeah. To, and to get as good a performance on yeah. the instrument and the voice. So I mean, it does it does subdue his drums slightly. It doesn't mean it just means I think there's it's a slightly stricter, straightforward part than it is on something like Twist and Shout. Well, you say that, but then listen to the stuff he does on the snare in this is is pretty clippy and 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 oh, it's still good. It doesn't, it doesn't lose time or anything yeah. like that, and it doesn't it doesn't sag at any point. You know, it's it's, uh, it's solid. It's it's not it's better not, than I could do. Oh come on! I mean, it's, I'm not saying that, you know. Um, it's I'm saying it's more subdued. But it's still solid and gr- and good. But it's d- it's not as off the hook as Twist and Shout is definitely off the hook. Well, that's not right, is it? Off the yeah, you can be off the hook, off the hook. off the chain. Why not off the leash? Okay. Um, so yeah, it's still mad though to think that like, I mean, they didn't really have that much more. They did have a slight amount of multi-tracking availability at that time, didn't they? You think well, well, yeah, they could they could rig things up to do the overdubs like they do with the, the harmonica songs and stuff like Although that. Although I imagine but, he would have been uncomfortable probably because he was probably used to just singing it as part of the set behind the kit and I guess saying, well, look, record it and so, you know, so you can get the drums, not worry about singing and breathing whilst you're trying to do the drums. But um, I bet he probably wouldn't have liked that even if they'd offered, which they probably didn't. So No, no, it's just, it's just the process for recording. Same with Twist and Shout, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. So I, I guess it, yeah, it doesn't make any... Capture um, a performance rather than build a record yeah i'm saying this i'm forgetting that all the way through all the like twist and shout john's playing his guitar and singing at the same time it's not yeah. like i'm gonna it's so uh easy to forget that that's just how they did they didn't now you just mm, would, yeah, you just yeah. don't do it now unless someone's doing a live performance and that's the point of it it's just like well you just do the guitar bit and then go and do your vocals like don't do it at the same time it's just i know some people probably insist on that but anyway anyway they they both all do a very good job. Ringo does a good job of his vocals and his drums. It's in his range. He puts some energy into it. And it's backed up nicely by some bop shoe-ops. Um, I mean, it's in the rock and roll standard. I'm going to give it 46 for music. Right out. Production then. Um, I mean, I've not got much else to say of the, um, different than I did for Twist and Shout. It... No, well, you wouldn't. But I will, I will simply add, it was one take. Okay. One take to get to get that, and it be on a record, and it be as good as it is. That's, what a band! What a band they are! Yeah, it's very they're very clever, clever boys. They'll go far. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to give it the same 
solid rock and roll twist and um, please please me score that of 53 for production that i gave to a uh, twist and shout. while we're while we're in production category I, I think it might be a nice type thing to mention i've never mentioned before i don't think okay but on these early sessions yeah the band's equipment wasn't brilliant you know the guitar amps seem to be all right but uh, it's worth noting that mccartney brings in his first amp that he's using which has got this sort of what they call the coffin uh, speakers okay. sort of hand-built cabinet for his for his amplifier yeah but it's such a noisy piece of rubbish yeah that sort of does the job for them on stage but isn't really working so in the studio you have to suddenly like stop everything and they discovered this when they were doing love me do you know mm. and they but they carried the process on for you know a couple more records at least they have to go down the engineers have to run down and sort of rig up something for him to play through because right. they don't have just have like spare amps lying around no. in studios certainly not then anyway mm. So that you have to go, I think it'll have been someone like Jeff Emmerich or someone like that. We'll have had to go off and find a, a preamp to route into an amplifier, to mm. route into uh, a speaker cabinet that they nicked out of one of the studio's echo chambers. Right. So it's like this jerry-built sort of thing that McCartney's playing through on these sessions. Oh, no. It, 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 yeah, I never thought about the amps. Yeah. Yeah, you just, again, again, you just live in a world where everyone who's got a guitar and played in a band, has a, a kind of a easily carrier, you know, a, a transportable amp that you can just yeah. pick up in one hand, which is probably so much better than anything that they, they had readily available back then. Right, well, that gives it a 33 overall, because there's no lyrics again, because it's another cover from Please Please Me. Tell you what, though, Paul, next, it's all too much. It's all too much paul well it certainly can be and occasionally you just need to take time out okay so don't feel guilty if you do okay that's, that's good advice one thing you could do is you could spend six minutes and 25 seconds listening to the song it's all too much mm. a george harrison song mm. uh, which turns up on the yellow submarine soundtrack which comes out on the 17th of january 1969 slightly different version in the film in fact okay uh, obviously it comes out on the song track as well that they put out in 1999 it's recorded on the 25th and 31st of May uh, in Delane Lee Studios. So it's not an Abbey Road production. And I think you can tell. Yeah. And the 2nd of June, they do this overdub of some orchestral instruments on top of it as well. And it's such... Uh, <laughs> it's such a strange song. Yeah. It's such a strange George song. Because hmm. it's sort of... It's sort of just like a mad advanced jam that's turned into something. Yeah. I don't know what. It's it's one of these odd Beatles moments. It, well, the studio. And it's six minutes 25 as well, you know. It doesn't happen to have been. So it's that studio you said it was recorded in. It, what, it's not the same as Baby It's a Rich um, Baby You're a Rich Man, is, is it? Is it? Uh, no, I think that was Olympic, I think. This, um, I think this was this the only one they did in Delane Lee? I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, they're away from Abbey Road. Yeah. It's, you can tell, it does, they, they, when they do these more kind of ambitious songs in different studios, there's something weird with them. But um, 
I've been waiting to listen to this one on headphones for ages, and not that I, there was anything stopping me, but you know, knowing it was coming up because be, being one that gets played in the car a lot, as I've said, the Yellow Submarine gets played a lot in my car on the way to and from school on occasions, although not at the moment, it's the Moana soundtrack at the moment, but anyway. Um, I, I, when you listen to this one in the car, it's just yearning for stereo headphones, you know, to hear all those sounds to let them surround you. And I've been thinking, oh, I really want to get stuck into this one. So I only had to wait 40 episodes. I thought I'd wait till this came, till it came up. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm st- straying slightly into production, but it's, it's it's almost inseparable from from it because, I mean, musically, this song is great, um, I think. It does... Not, sim- there's not much to it, is there? There's not, it's, no, it's, no. You know, a lot of it's just on a pivot note in the bass. Yeah. And, and it, it sort of moves around that. It's uh, it's a textural piece, this. It's similar to other George songs, based around the, the kind of drone note, the one chord, yeah. the melody-driven... Yeah layered piece that he but i mean his, his skill was even though he does at least four or five of them just during his beatles times you know love you too within you without you this um and a couple of others i can't think at the moment like he could still just come up with melody blue jay way blue jay way yeah he, he could come up with those melodies that play around that chord and still and then suddenly make it a very distinctive piece of music regardless of the fact that you know in essence, it's not really. There's no chords going on, <laughs> considering mm-hmm. he's writing amongst two, two songwriters who could string together all sorts of chords and come up with all sorts of things. He does that just from the 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 poignancy of a melody, um, and he does the same here. The verses slide up and down the scale beautifully, and then we get the chorus, which is catchy and dynamic, and that hints at like a second chord a little bit with the da da da. Is it? Oh got, yeah, yeah. It's a slight move. It's still kind of keeping the root yeah, it's not it's not firmly rooted on one chord but no. it's it's like uh, anyone who knows anything about this stuff so the note of g for instance mm. is in your root chord of g yeah but it's also one of the notes in the chord of c yeah so you can stick your bass leave your bass on the g Absolutely. and you get this thing when you someone everyone else can change to c you're still playing a chord uh, a note within a chord yeah just gives you a different sort of grounding effect absolutely yeah and it's um and the bass hammering out the root is important in this. That's what it's doing, isn't it? Paul's just yeah. kind of like, I, I'm not moving. I mean, he moves around and does other things, but he's really kind of like mainly sticking to the root, um, but it's up and down the octave, perhaps. But yeah, but on the same note. Um, I mean, that's what we, that's what that mainly does. Um, and there's a guitar ringing out on open strings, it sounds like. It sounds like they've got a lot of open tuning going on. Yeah, we're not sure about what the tuning is. I mean, so this is one of the ones where people like to have arguments about who's playing guitar on it. Okay. It's probably John. Okay. So really fuzzed up guitar. Uh, yeah, doing. and if it is John, it's some really good John yeah. playing, actually, when you listen to it closely. There's some lovely bits. There's some lovely little... Would it be all of it would be John every bit of guitar, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Because George is playing the Hammond organ, ah. and but then bits of it do sound like Paul. So if you think about the solos in things like "Good Morning, Good Morning," yeah, uh, where Paul's doing them or "Taxman" or whatever, mm. uh, some of that sort of screaming guitar sound that that Paul's yeah. very good at. But then I think uh, my instinct is that it's John. Okay. Uh, and if so, it needs to be more considered for how good it is for. Yeah. John, who, as we know in the end, 
Jack, you know, is a good guitarist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but he plays in a different sort of way to and the others. Part of Let It Be as well, which is, you surprised me with by saying that's a John and that's, you know, yeah. the, the album, your songs on there. Um, yeah, I love some of the guitar bits in this, like the, 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 the little twiddles especially. Um, the very atmospheric kind of um, clipped, but really distinct, very nice. Um, the organ that George is playing, the chord change and is suspended, and then there's lots of Ringo and percussion going on, and it's almost almost sounds um, sampled and yeah. It, I mean, I think the thing, if you're going to be critical about this song, it, it does feel a little bit like they've thrown the kitchen sink at it. it yeah, really, yeah, there's a lot going on because the claps. It sounds like because they come in straight away. Yeah, and if you listen to the stereo version, they're spread across the stereo. So it's like the lead instrument in this is clapping. Yeah. They're that loud and prominent. And then you've got a tambourine and maracas and a cowbell and the drum kit. And then the drum kit seems to be like layered like after the first 30 seconds or something. There's, there's a, You get the drum kit, everything's in and playing. And then it seems to kind of sound thicker and more accelerated. After, I can't explain it. There's a point where mm. it just goes up a notch. The, the percussion um, after a little while. Um, yeah. I, I, you're obviously not getting what I'm saying. No, I'm just letting you flounder. Yeah. Well, anyway, this, it, there's a lot of layers going on with the percussion and there's something, at one point it suddenly gets really thick and like driven and he's like, oh yeah, this is like almost for, for modern, comp- modern, modern comparison, something like, like a fat boy slim type of feel to it, kind of a breakbeat feel to it. Kind of yeah, I can. Of, I understand what you mean. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's great. Um, but he's having a lot of fun with it anyway. Ringo as well. He's doing some great fills and things. Um, it's sonically interesting, and I like the um, chanting towards the ending with all the variations on too much. Yeah, ah, too much. Yeah, but um, yeah, it is a bit of everything, and the music's not particularly. If you took all that away, the music wouldn't really be that much of a guitar organ going. But it's um, I'm going to give it 59 for music because I think the production, despite being cluttered, is where the song is trying to make its mark. Right, oh. Production, then. Um, I don't think yeah. So it's 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 troubled, isn't it, when it comes to production? I I say it comes together, but I do think that I should at first say I don't think it's mixed as well as it could be in any version. I've heard. No, no. I think it, it, it does... It suffers from its strange being recorded somewhere else scenario yeah. and the way they put it together and, and the fact that it's... The idea behind the song is fairly slight and, and clearly at this time as well, the band mm. are in a bit of a let's have a jam sort of mode because they've just done Pepper. Yeah. Literally, it's coming out while they're recording this, essentially. Mm. And... I think there's. I think around this time as well. There's, there's a few tapes of them jamming, and they're not a jamming band. So actually, the best thing is when they've got a song yeah. that feels like a jam. So at least George has written a song here that they could give a sort of jamming yeah. energy to. But then they stuck the weirdness of these trumpets and bass clarinets on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, there's this there's certain great bits of it. I think there's flashes of absolute brilliance in this. I mean, there's part of it I love. I just feel like there's there's a version out there we never got, which brings all the elements in, in a better way, and and maybe 
lifts the whole track more consistently at all times. It's six minutes, 25 seconds in its yeah, final it's, version. Yeah. The actual, ver that's edited down from an eight minute version. Right. Which is something. It's, it's a long song for the amount of material that's in it. Yeah. Really. But yeah, they do some interesting sonic stuff in it. So yeah, and it's, it's the kind of thing yeah. you know you could you can you should be able to put on headphones and get lost in. I, I guess because it hasn't, there's something just not right about how it's been produ produced and mixed completely. Because otherwise, I think it would be a massive kind of sonic classic that people are like you've got, you put earphones on and listen to it all too much for seven minutes. But it doesn't. I don't think it has that reputation because I think as fun as that is to do, there, it, it doesn't necessarily carry you all the way with it no um but there's lo loads of stuff to pick out in there so i mean what is what is going on in there paul well as i mean the main thing to mention is that yeah george martin arranges these four trumpets mm. to do and they're obviously at times they're playing that um, trumpet voluntary from um mm. the prince of denmark march by jeremiah clark da, 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 da. that one. Oh yeah so that's a piece of existing music so that's a bit like a forerunner of what happens in all you need yeah, is love. Need love. Yeah, yeah. But he's also got this bass clarinet, so he's made a good choice of picking out an instrument that can do some weird sound things. <laughs> so he do, do that weird sort of soaring noise. I wondered <laughs> what that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is great. So, he, so again, a skill of George Martin is knowing that... A good producer and arranger is to know the texture and the textural possibilities of instruments mm. as well. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, and it's a wonder in some ways they've got to mix out... A, out of it at all with all the things going yeah. on in the way and i wonder they, a little bit if because it's a george song they perhaps didn't you know he yeah, always got yeah, slightly less uh, you know attention a bit short shrift uh, but i mean some of the guitar distortion sustain is immense and mm. amazing to hear i think i like that um I, I think it it is what it is i think it deserves its six minutes to listen to it all and i'm kind of surprised it isn't a better regarded song in general but it is a hard one to get into because of the madness of it well, that's kind of why I like it. It's ambitious. And I like ambition. Um, uh, and I like the slightly unorthodoxness of it being six, seven minutes, you know. Um, yeah, it doesn't always get it right, but I'm going to give it 78 for production still because I think it's, it's, it's got a lot going on. So lyrics then. We have some more amazing George lyrics though, I think. Um, mixing love for life and love itself with love, I guess, for... Um, Patty at the time, would it be? Um, uh, well, I don't think it's that. I think it's it's less specific than that. I think it is. Is it with the long blonde hair and blue eyes? Well, that's a line he's nicked from a different song. Ah. So there's a song called Sorrow by the Merseys. Uh, they weren't the first band to do it, but they um, they had the hit with it. Okay. Which is with your long blonde eyes. Long blonde yeah. eyes. Nearly long blonde <laughs> eyes and your hair of blue. Who are you? What are you? And your magic legs, that exciting shoe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a great song, um, Sorrow, yeah. anyway, by the Merseys. And um, he's just quoting from it. Okay. So right. you, can, you, can, you can divorce that from what George has actually written. And his stuff is all the floating down the stream of time, set me on a silver sun. Yeah. All too much. Type I like stuff. The, I like the, you know. I think I like when George talk, talks about the notion of love itself. I think and the the role that plays in his philosophy and his feelings about existence. That it's all too much is a real 
there's something in that more more so than the love you take is equal to the love you make it's all too much for me to take that i mean you can feel not in like not in an overwhelming way but like tapping into that feeling of a just yeah. existence you know well like, i like the fact that it grounds as well because of the idea of like this is this is celestial, but also make sure I don't lose. I don't I make sure I can tea. get home for a cuppa. Yeah, yeah, that's you know? the thing. You see, yeah, but it's also like you think it's you know all the world's a birthday cake, so take a piece, but not too much. It's got the quality of like the I look at the floor and I need see it needs sweeping. Yeah, something very grounding. Yeah, type that. But then the next thing you know, you're off on the way to a silver sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I mean, what George says about it in his book, I Me Mine, is. Uh, it's all too much was written in a childlike manner from realizations that appeared during and after some LSD experiences. Oh. But this is, I think, the important bit, and which were later confirmed in meditation. Okay, yeah. So, so it's sort of he's had his mind expanded by the drugs, and but later on, as he's got into the philosophy and abandoned the uh, the mind altering stuff, yeah, yeah, he's sort of gone. Oh no, yeah, that was stuff that was within me. So, yeah. This is this is it. Oh, just because it happened on drugs doesn't mean it. it, it you know, it's yeah, it's it, it doesn't. It, it may be doors being opened rather than completely like fabricated. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, given the way that he he was going with his philosophies, I think it's nice and it shows his grounded, funny side with his kind of get me home for tea thing. It, yeah, definitely, that's a really good line to. To, to still make you think of the wisecracking George and show how he's growing as a person, but it's still that person too. Yeah. Um, it's, I like it. It's a joyous song. The feeling of your heart wanting to burst with love is one of the best things. Um, and blended with the brainwave distorting sonic waves of the accompaniment makes for a hypnotic and uplifting experience to listen to via headphones, I'd say. Not so much your car stereo with other stuff going on. Doesn't work as well. 84 for lyrics I'm giving it. I really like them. So 73.7 overall. Finally, then, she's leaving home. Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside, she is free She... We gave her most of our lives Is leaving, sacrifice more. She's leaving home, Paul. Oh, that's sad. I don't know. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> I just can't really sort of make a hilarious quip and then get into the content of this song, can we? No. So obviously it's a track on Sgt. Pepper, uh, which officially comes out on the 1st of June, 67, but actually the 26th of May. The uh, orchestral backing for this was recorded on the 17th of March, 67, with the vocal overdubs with Paul and John, mm-hmm. uh, done on the 20th of March. It's essentially a Paul song with John. I don't know. Well, it's it's never clear whether John actually wrote his bits or it was a face-to-face thing of them two arranging the sort of to-and-fro vocals. Mm. But it's Paul telling a story taken from real life, mm. but uh, off into into the McCartney-verse, you know, character-wise. Yeah. It's a, and it's the first and only Beatles score officially anyway written by anyone other than george martin mm, yes so i hear yeah which um would be a problem if it weren't for the fact that it's flipping brilliant <laughs> yeah yeah you know um well you say the first and only what about the um what about all the what do you call it stuff that um 
Well, what the, you mean the things. you mean the let it be overdubs yeah. and things? Well, yeah, well, yeah, not counting yeah. them by that point anyway. Yeah, okay, yeah, I see. The only decent ones, anyway. Huh? Although actually, no, I quite no, like no. I mean Ryan and what he does. So, um, anyway, I mean, I think yes. Sometimes actually, people say, "Oh, it's a George Martin score," but actually sometimes it was just like they got the musicians into the studio and Paul would be going around going, you play that note, you play that note, you play that note. And mm. it'd be a bit more improv than that, which used to really annoy session musicians. I can imagine. And I think there was even some of that with this, particularly the harp part. Uh, but he did get someone in Mike Leander was the chap's name to orchestrate it just because George Martin wouldn't, wouldn't basically come running when he called him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's it. Is as much before I get into my stuff about the music, considering it's such a large part of this. That is that pretty much the story is that George Martin wasn't wasn't available and he didn't want to wait. Yeah, that was it. So Paul's got the idea. He's written the song. He wants he wants to record it. He wants a score, a particular sound for it. Calls up George Martin. George says, "I've got a Silla Black session at half past two. Paul says, "Well, just come around at two. It's like yeah, you're going to write a song and you know do a score in that time. Mm. Um, and so George is like, well, no, I've got, a, you know, this is my job. Yeah. And Paul goes off and chases up someone else, gets Mike Leander and and uh, breaks Big George's little heart. Oh, poor Big George. Um, but they got over it, didn't they? So. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it diving. George still had to do the session. You know, he yeah. still had to do. He still had to do the still, recording. He still, still had to do the the editing post production, and Did had to conduct acknowledge well? that it was a good song, a good arrangement. Yeah, this is it. I mean, yeah, it would have been different if it had been bad, but he obviously picked someone good. Starting with the harp and Paul's voice ringing out, um, an audible breath in as the cello joins in, which is a really nice touch. I think if you've ever, if anyone's ever seen like a string ensemble live mm. like a string quartet or whatever so in this case we've got four violins two viola two cellos celli sorry mm. uh, a double bass and a half mm. so it's a small ensemble but if anyone's ever seen a small chamber ensemble or, or a, a quartet quintet mm. anything like that you can always hear the performers breathing and prepping and stuff like that yeah. so it makes it feel very real that you hear that sort of yeah. in when the and the cellos are about to start doing what they're doing and um yeah, and then the rest of the string quartet has joined us by the end of the first phrase. Uh, it's not a string quartet, there is it? It's a string um, ensemble. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's an ensemble because it's yeah. nine pieces plus a harp. And we follow Paul's melancholic melody until the chorus is such, really, just him and these the strings, where where the rest of the voices join, being John's. And yeah. it kind of becomes unclear who's lead and who's backing at that point, doesn't it? It's just, they're just talking to each other. They're weaving Yes. Posing questions and working together to lament the verses, you know, this 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 amazing different kind of um way of doing a chorus that isn't a hook, it's a it's a it's a um, a pattern, it's a it's a it's it's an arrangement, it's a composition, you know, of, of the voices become like the strings, you know, one stays high whilst the other goes up down and all sorts of things go on, it's brilliant. Um and other than that, despite this being such a landmark and important song, I think, in the Beatles' development and the development of rock and pop music in general, you know, the main credit has to go to that fella whose name I've already forgotten. What was his name? Mike Leander. Mike Leander, because it's just it's brilliantly scored. I mean, George's stuff, 
George Martin's also brilliantly scored. It's, it's equally brilliantly scored, I think. It's a different style. There is, I mean, you could you could actually analyse how it's different to what George Martin would have done. Yeah. Um, I, I think there is things in there that George wouldn't have done as a in, in terms of his musical approach to stuff. Like he probably wouldn't have done the fluttery vibrato stuff in quite the same way anyway. Uh, yes, yeah. And he tended to lean towards woodwind as well and probably mm. would have augmented it with that. But it was, yeah, it's, it's what you're going to say. It's, it is what it is now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's listening to this who didn't know a lot about the Beatles, and I would suspect even plenty of people who, who think or feel they do, wouldn't I don't think you'd listen to this uh, and get to this song and go, oh, no, this sounds slightly different than the instrumentation that's appeared on other tracks on this album. So I do think it fits. Like you say, you could you could and can identify the differences, but if you wanted to, but I think it fits the um, it fits like perfectly into its place in Sergeant Pepper, doesn't it? Um, and it really complements John and Paul's voice in this otherwise Beatles less track. Um, it is, isn't it? There's nothing else. Just John and Paul. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I think the tracks like this really help develop the idea that it's okay for the song to be the focus above the need of the band performing it. And I know they've done other songs before this time, which might just be one of them with a the guitar or everything, but that Yesterday. feels like a variation on a theme. But this, I think, is starting to really show that a band can make an album and not have to be on everything all the time if the song doesn't call for it, you know. Yeah. There's something about that this which kind of opens up the doors to kind of, well, you know, if it's, eventually what would turn into things like Revolution 9. Like it does, it needs to be whatever it needs to be. Not be, it doesn't need to be something like. Obviously, we've had two songs where there well, are covers where which were kind of showcases where one, you know, the drummer always had to do a song. That was kind of the way things were and things. It was the way sets worked and and stuff like that. And they all had to have a little turn and the things. way what worked sets. <laughs> it sets S E T S. We're going down the, what the rock and roll path a bit there. Yeah, but. Um, but yeah, I think this is this. Would you agree? This is has a kind of importance to it in its. Well, yeah, but I mean, of course, you've got within you, without you, as well on there. Oh, yeah. They've done yesterday before, so it's it's part of that. It's 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 not something that they would ever particularly. There's no rock instruments on it, though, is there? I mean, yesterday's still got a guitar at its centre of it. Yeah, so and yeah, within you, without you's feature is the Indian instruments. Absolutely, but, but within you, without you's on the same. That and this, I guess, have the same kind of like look. We could like not even play our instruments, and it's still our song because it's it's us as a band deciding that's what we're going to do. Um, even if we don't end up being on it, you know. Anyway, that just struck me as a for an undeveloped thought. I thought I'd share with you all. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to give it 86 for music because it's obviously brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got Sheila Bromberg playing the harp and the first female performer on a Beatles record. Ah, good stuff. Um, nice one, Sheila. Production then. So he, he, George got to conduct it at least, didn't he, and do his kind of recording. Yes. And obviously didn't snub the, the uh, other co- uh, arranger composer by doing a bad job of it. He's done. He's no. done a brilliant job. Although, I, of course, if you listen to the um, unedited version of it, at the end of each chorus, there's a little cello run, uh, and it, I wonder if George had a little moment of joy when he was going. Do you know what? They don't need that. I'm going to cut that little tiny two two beat phrase out. 
and just put that hard link so that you yes, get there the is a little song cut. That's that what it is because they can so hit dun, dun, dun. Dun. and then in the yeah. original version there was like a little cello run to sort of draw drop you out of the chorus uh, ready for the verse to start again. But he puts a hard cut in. I must have that on the Sergeant Pepper's anniversary set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, well, that was a good choice. But you can hear that actually a little bit. But yeah. when you put traditional instruments in the hands of Martin recording them. They just sound so perfect. They're just so clear, bright. And as engineers and Abbey Road. Yeah, you know. Yeah, obviously as the director of everything that was kind of... It's just they're clear, bright, airy, and the vocals sit over them like cream over coffee when you get it right and it doesn't all go into it and everything. So yeah, you've got much else to say, really. Have you got much else to say on production? No, other than if you've listened to the mono version of this, the mono mm. mix of She's Leaving Home is like a semitone higher. Oh. So They've run the tape faster, so it's got a bit... It's like this weird, sort of brighter, higher-pitched version, which is Strange. odd in terms of differences between mono and stereo. Maybe someone lent under control by accident. Mm. Um, I'm going to give it 89 for production. Mm-hmm. Lyrics, then. So, I mean, this may be his ultimate in kitchen sink drama songs. Do you think? Well, this is one I mentioned at the top of the episode about the weird coincidences that sort of you know, coincidences, events, yeah. opportunities, moments that sort of flow through the Beatles mm. over time. And of course, this is a really weird one. Okay. So, shall I tell you? Tell us the story, Paulie. I'm sure plenty of people know. So, Paul McCartney was reading the uh, Daily Mail in uh, February 27th, 1967, mm. in which on page... Oh, I'm going to have to look close at my screen here. Five... Mm was a story titled A-Level Girl Dumps Car and Vanishes. And there's a picture of this particular girl, mm. Melanie Coe. The father of 17-year-old Melanie Coe, the schoolgirl who seemed to have everything, spent yesterday searching for her in London and Brighton. Melanie had her own car, an Austin 1100. It was left unlocked outside her home when she vanished. She had a wardrobe full of clothes. She took only those she was wearing. She left her checkbook and drew no money from her account. Melanie, who has long blonde hair... Uh, was studying for her A-level examinations, planned to go to university or drama school. Her father, businessman Mr John Coe, said yesterday, I cannot imagine why she should run away. She has everything here. She's very keen on clothes, but she left them all, even her fur coat. Mm. We have spoken to her friends and visited the places where she goes, but there, there is no trace of her. I only wish she would telephone us. Mm. And that's the article that McCartney saw. And that's what triggers this song that he yeah. writes, especially that stuff about oh, we've given her everything yeah. type thing that the, the dad's saying. Now, that's, that's 1967. Right. Bafflingly, and I think it's on their Beatles' first appearance on Ready, Steady, Go uh, a few years previous. Okay. The, there's a, a dance comp- a dance and miming competition. And this footage exists. You can watch it. It's on YouTube. And so four girls in the Ready, Steady, Go studio are miming to uh, a Brenda Lee song. Okay. And the person who's going to judge them on who was doing the best miming and dancing is Paul McCartney. Right. The girl who wins yeah. is Melanie Coe, the girl who then later what? vanishes. Really? It's, yeah. So you can see it, Paul McCartney, like at the end, he shakes her hand and gives her an album and she goes off and, you know, she'd been there all day while they were rehearsing and stuff like that. Can I just and check? Then, was she okay, by the way? Did, she, did they find her? Yes. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. This yeah. isn't going to have a horrible ending. No, well, yeah, stories of missing girls in the 60s yeah. and 70s and things like that is, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, she, she was found, yeah. Okay. 
And you can read, you know, she's spoken extensively about it since. And in uh, A Hard Day's Right, which is a very good book, mm. you can, you know, there's a good interview with her in that there. Wow. But it's just such a weird coincidence. What a strange thing. I mean, yeah. My he didn't know. He didn't know that this was the same girl that he said you did a good job miming Brenda Lee. For, know, know, she spent, spent five years ago, four years ago, whatever. Four years arguing with her parents about the new life she's going to have now she's won a dance competition and when they f- she finally yeah. snapped she's going I'm going to run away and I'm going to inspire the first but she must have been so cup. young when she was doing that yeah to to then be if she's only 17 in 1967 she must have been going to this Ready City Go studio as a dancer <laughs> very young mm. wow does that footage exist or is that yeah, yeah. of the Ready City Go thing yeah, yeah. oh wow weird well, that, that's uh, I didn't know any of that. That's mad. Um, I knew but that. Then obviously, Paul. Uh, yeah, Paul just takes this article and then spins off into, like I say, the McCartney verse. And obviously, he doesn't make that link. I guess he's no, no. no idea until I'm sure someone told him afterwards, and he went, "Eh, possibly." Um, I don't know if he would. Have, <laughs> I don't know what sound he would have made. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, so the, what we end up with, though, from all of that, well, not from all of that, but from the the the, the story he's got is. Not quite a full story, but the start of one in perfect kind of McCartney verse kind of you don't get everything you get the idea of something don't you you we we get the the beginning of something or little snippets of something little flashes of something so here here we see her sneak out of the house early then we we see her parents discovering the letter she's left, and then a few hours later she's meeting a man from the motor trade, whoever that is. But those two words, motor trade, just bring into bear so many connotations of what it could mean. And it's such a strange topic in some ways to take inspiration from and turn into a song, but also make makes total sense once you hear it. You know, you think, well, yeah. is eye and ear for a way into a little story that gets you hooked without really exploring it further than a few lines. I think it was only really paralleled by John's ability to pick up phrases from the media and turn them into something more abstract. It's that real combination of stuff that really made them what they were, you know, um, of that combination of down-to-earth drama with abstract, abstract psychedelic flights of fancy that makes Sgt. Pepper's just so good. And this song is another example of that at its finest. On the Paul McCartney side of things, it's, it's just a strange thing that this one of the best rock and roll, if not the best kind of concepty rock and roll albums ever made has this song about a girl running away from home you know yeah and and coming down to such a simple and obvious thing as like fun is the one thing that money can't buy yeah that, you know you know it's so it's in many ways it's almost a bit teenage sort of poetry in a way mm. but it's because it's such a simple and universal thing that we discover yeah and then for him to come across this article that has it played out in the press in the words of her father, like mm. we bought her everything. It must have been, you know, it's a, it's good fuel for the imaginative fire. Yes. And I'm going to give it 87 for lyrics, which gives it 87.3 overall. And mm. we are done for episode 40. And we have one song in the top 20. The others have placed as follows. Boys is joined to 185th with Anna Go To Him, Chains, and I'm Happy Just To Dance With You. We will be sorting out some of these uh, clusters when we get to the end. Twist and Shout is 173rd. The End is Joint 61st with Rain. Oh, that's interesting. And It's All Too Much is 60th. 
just one ahead of them. So, we'll do the top 20. At number 20, Nowhere Man. At number 19, Blackbird. At number 18, Yesterday. At number 17, The Fool on the Hill. She's Leaving Home is at number 16. Cry Baby Cry at number 15. Lady Madonna at 14. All You Need Is Love is number 13. Come Together at number 12. Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite is number 11. At number 10, Let It Be. At number 9, Eleanor Rigby. Within You Without You is number 8. Across the Universe is number 7. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds at number 6. Penny Lane at number 5. In My Life is number 4. I Am the Warrus is number 3. At number 2, Strawberry Fields Forever. And at number 1, A Day in the Life. So thanks again, Paul. That's all right. Thank you for having me. That's okay. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Beatles. Thank you.